Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today, we're going to build a little bit on something we got to in the last episode. You might remember in the last episode about Hobbes and Plato, we started talking a bit about the distribution of time and how, for Plato, we are unable to do philosophy without some people to help us out. And those people may not want to help us out. And so, well, for the Greeks, we have to enslave them. And we were talking about how we would kind of like to be able to get out of that a little bit. And in the course of discussing that, we brought up some Aristotle. And so I thought today we would start from Aristotle and then move on to conscientious attempts to get away from the slavery. People who are aware of this element of ancient political thought, who are trying to get some of the goods that it produces— but are open about wanting to ditch the slavery. And specifically, we're going to talk about Benjamin Constant, the French political theorist from the 18th and 19th centuries. So Aristotle, basically, if you don't remember, the gist of it is that for Aristotle, there are three kind of classes. There's the aristocrats, the best people. These are the people who are able to cultivate virtue. There's the slaves who are implements, tools of the aristocrats, ideally. And a middle group, the vulgar craftsmen. And Aristotle doesn't say a whole lot about the vulgar craftsmen, but it's clear that the vulgar craftsmen aren't enslaved. They're not tools, but they also don't pursue philosophy, don't pursue the truth or the good. So when they have free time, they use it to some other purpose, and the purposes Aristotle identifies with them is pursuit of money and pursuit of status. So in Aristotle's system, to get virtue, you need leisure, And you also need to be the right kind of person. So there are two arguments there. One is you've got to be a natural master as opposed to a natural slave because Aristotle, the natural slave, is incapable on some kind of fundamental level of choosing ends for themselves. They are a tool by nature rather than by socialization or choice. So that's one argument he gives for slavery. The other is that you have some people who are slaves because the people who are going to be free need tools, slaves, to help them to be free. And so that's where you get get that from. All of that making sense so far, Edmund? Yeah. I think one thing that people often get uh, confused about with the natural masters versus natural slaves distinction, uh, which is quite akin to Plato's argument we discussed in the last episode premised on natural inequality is that people often think that this is uh, 
based on some modern racialized distinction between masters and slaves, whereas for Aristotle, um, quote, some are slaves everywhere, others nowhere. So whether somebody is a slave or a master isn't really determined by how they appear. It just happens to be the case. Um, because he says that though um, nature does somehow transmit masculineness and slaver, uh, slavishness uh, genetically, sometimes nature doesn't. And you can't rely on nature to do this, um, to make the children of slaves slaves and the children of masters masters. So uh, I guess that that's an important distinction between um, modern racist distinctions between masters and slaves. For Aristotle, you're a master or you're a slave, but it's pretty contingent and pretty undetermined whether you're a master or a slave. You just are or you're not. Yeah, and that has to do with whether you're capable of choosing your own ends. And for him, the natural slave is a tool by nature, someone who needs to be given ends by someone else, can't self-select them, right? So you've got the people who can't choose their own ends. Then for Aristotle, you've got the people who maybe they could choose their own ends, but they don't have any time to think about what ends would be the right ends. So these are people who have inherent capabilities, but they don't have any leisure time. And the solution for them is to get some slaves to free up some of their time. But even among the people who have leisure time, some of those people are going to misuse the time. And so Aristotle says, we've got to educate the people with the leisure time so that they'll use the time to contemplate the true, the good, the beautiful, cultivate the virtues, rather than be vulgar and pursue money or pursue status or think about how they can make more money or climb a social ladder. So that's many different ways in which you can end up incapable of being virtuous for Aristotle. It can be by nature. It can be because you don't have any time or because you don't have any slaves. It can be because you have time, but you aren't educated properly. Hmm. So a lot of different ways everything can go wrong here. Yeah, because for Aristotle, um, on the point of education, you are what you repeatedly do. And so even if you've got enough leisure time to act as an Aristotelian aristocrat, which means uh, uh, not the kind of modern sense of uh, aristocrats, but literally... Um, the rule by the best, um, the, the, the best people. These aristocrats um, are only aristocrats in Aristotle's uh, definition because they, use, they have their time and they use their time well. And there are some people who have sufficient leisure to be an aristocrat. There are people who Aristotle calls oligarchs who have lots of wealth um, but they use their wealth in bad ways. And they are also poor people who are part of the vulgar class, who aren't natural slaves, but are citizens. But nevertheless, they use their time poorly for Aristotle. And Aristotle thinks that it's only when you have sufficient education, sufficient training in habit, that you can develop 
virtue. And I think, uh, interestingly, he attributes this uh, educational virtuous capacity to the middling sort among the citizens. So we talked about um, aristocrats and the vulgar class. So the vulgars come in both the rich and the poor, and the aristocrats, the um, the virtuous people in Aristotle's society, lie somewhere in between. Because if you've got lots and lots of wealth, you're going to want to continue um, with that, continue with pursuing status. And it's likely that you got lots and lots of wealth because you were interested in that to begin with. Right. Yeah. And if you're poor, even if you're not a natural slave for Aristotle, you're interested in getting more because you don't have enough, which is why Aristotle thought that it's the middling sort in your city um, of citizens, the aristocrats, who should rule. Um, and it's also the middling sort, the aristocrats, who have the education, the habits, the time necessary for doing something useful with their leisure time, namely philosophy. Yep, yep, you've got it right, Edmund. Yeah, and so this is all a difficult thing because it has elements that are very attractive to a lot of people and elements that are very repulsive to a lot of people. The attractive element is a system that provides people with the time and education they need to think about what's good and what's worth doing. Mm. A lot of people think that we could all do with a little bit more time to think about what's worth doing. And yeah. more time to be artists and to make things in the way that we think is best rather than out of fear of not having enough money, right? Mm. So one of the examples I often like to use with students on Aristotle is think about a band that is making music, right? Now, if you're a, if you're a low-income band and you get into music because you're trying to hit it big and make a living, you're not going to produce the very best album you're going to produce an album that's based on what you've seen results in people making a whole bunch of money, mm. right? And conversely, if you're a really, really successful band uh, and you're constantly touring all the time, you're not going to have any leisure time because you're running all over the place playing the music. So you're going to have a hard time coming up with new music that's really good, which is why people who make a really good album tend to not be able to do that very repeatedly in short periods of time. They need some time away to think about it, right? Yeah. And if you notice that really, really famous bands will often take a year or take six months or something and just go somewhere to the end of the earth, somewhere remote. And it's gotten to the point where in the music industry, if you hear that your favorite band is going on some kind of getaway trip to make an album... People get excited just by hearing about that because at this point it's a trope that that's how someone who is successful gets back in touch with their ability to make music. But uh, th there is a tendency for the people who get big in the music industry to be people who pursued status or pursued money and therefore did things that sold well. And so there's a tendency in popular music for there to be a lot of Aristotelian vulgarity. And that's in part why people always complain that the popular stuff isn't the best stuff, because the popular stuff tends to be made by the vulgar rather than the virtuous. Yeah. Uh, so 
there's there's a lot that's attractive here. A lot of us would like more content that's made in a virtuous way based on what people think is the best and what people think expresses what they really have to say as opposed to what's popular. We don't like to live in a world where when the general manager of the Houston Rockets makes a comment about China, uh, he has to apologize and the NBA has to pretend it never happened, you know, because that would cost a lot of money. He doesn't get to stick up for what he thinks because there's an imperative here to pursue money or to pursue status. We'd like it for people to be able to say what they think is right and for them to be able to think about that and act on that basis and not be compelled by the need to make money to do something else. But the downside is that Aristotle is very naked about what is necessary for people to have this free time and to have these virtues. And it's slavery. It's unambiguously slavery. Mm. Yeah. So this is where Constant comes in, right? Because Constant wants freedom without slavery. Yeah. Which is something Aristotle says you can't have. But what kind of slavery? Is it the kind of slavery... I guess it's perhaps both senses for Constant, that it's the slavery of non-citizens, the kind of the Aristotelian natural slaves, which is not particularly nice because in reality, there is no such thing as natural slaves. I think we would like to perhaps um, embrace a more Hobbesian notion of natural equality, where... um, there may be diversity in capacities, but this does not produce groups of people with radically different um, levels of capacity for learning. Um, yeah. yeah, there Is, may be people with a little bit you know, different, different strengths and weaknesses, but right. the, the sharp hierarchical division is not very helpful. Right. It's more of a heterarchy than a hierarchy, I guess, that, that nature gives us. It's a... Um, it's lots of common capacities and some slight contingent um, variation that happens because of genetic mutation, but that's pretty uh, randomly distributed. Uh, so, yeah. so there's no not, not there's to no get hierarchy. too much into the weeds about about how the science works. No, but, sure, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- th- there is this this um, you know, this question then for Constant is if we get rid of that kind of slavery, what kind of politics can we have? And so Mm -hmm. the first move is that if we're going to get rid of this slavery, that means people have to meet their own needs instead of having them met by slaves, which for Constant means people need to do a lot of commerce. There needs to be a lot of trade and business conducted to fill in for the slaves. Right. And that commerce, A, it eats into the leisure time, and B, it's going to induce more people to use their leisure time in a vulgar way to pursue more successful commerce as opposed to something else. Right. So Constant starts thinking about, well, that's not going to produce people who are capable of exercising the kind of political role that Aristotle envisions. And so Constant goes, well, maybe we don't want to exercise that kind of political role in the first place. Maybe we want a different sort of liberty. So Edmund alluded to the fact that Constant talks about two kinds of slavery, the external slavery of the non-citizen, 
but he also talks about an internal slavery of the citizen mm. in the ancient city. He makes the argument that, think about what happens to Socrates. Athens just decides that Socrates is no good and that he has to die. And the subject in the ancient city is answerable to the collective. And so the subject has got a lot of political influence. Ordinary people in Athens have, uh, who are not slaves, obviously, have got opportunities to go into politics, to hold public office, to participate directly in affairs, to give speeches on the pinks and all the rest of it. But Mm -hmm. the cost of this is that they're subject to the decisions of other people who occupy those office roles. And those other people could decide that they're a problem and they need to be ostracized and kicked out of the city for 10 years or something of that kind. Yeah. And so Constant goes, well, one of the benefits of having less time to do politics is that people won't be able to get up to all of that. And if you've been in a kind of small grassroots political organization that's supposed to take up a lot of your time, it's supposed to be a real life commitment. You'll, you'll notice it sounds a little bit more like Athens, right? It sounds a little bit more like direct democracy, where there's a lot of informal hierarchy and people getting ostracized and people getting shunned and socially picked on. And that goes on a lot in places in organizations where people are expected to participate very heavily all the time. And it's one of the downsides of having members-based organizations where the members themselves are expected to get involved a lot. Mm. You get a lot of this negative drama. Now, whether or not that negative drama is worth your while is up to you. But uh, for Constant, he's saying, "Uh, maybe we're better off without all of that. And maybe instead we'd like to have a system where, I mean, everybody gets a vote, but you just kind of put the government in the hands of some people who are professionals and you check up on them by having elections now and then. And otherwise, you don't have to do very much of it. So you're freed up to do a lot of commerce. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have slavery, slavery, but we have some kind of liberty. And the liberty is that for the most part, the individual doesn't get interfered with by the state. Yeah. Edmund, you sound unsatisfied by Constant's <laughs> wonderful solution to Aristotle's problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a well. It's 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 a nice idea to try to get rid of um, both forms of slavery at once. If we could do that, uh, then that would be great. I guess the problem is that the basis on which Constant constructs this society, um, this not. Uh, two un-Aristotelian um, constitutional monarchy. Um, I don't think that political institutions are that are, uh, that Constant constructs are too radically different from Aristotle. Um, I'm not sure. It may, perhaps I'm wrong on that. Uh, but from well, the scale is different because it's a representative system rather than the more direct regimes of ancient Athens. But in yeah, terms sure. of Thinking about institutions that are based on Greco-Roman institutions in general, particularly Roman civic republicanism, for instance, yeah, it's it's in the same ballpark. Yeah, and they sh- they share a distaste of direct democracy that they both don't want to. They do both don't want Athens full sc- full scale direct democracy. 
No, no. Aristotle isn't very thrilled with Athens, yeah. and he kind of likes the idea that Mega Alexandros, Alexander the Great, whom he tutors, would finally put an end to all that claptrap. Yeah. So I guess they both want to distance themselves from direct dem- democratic um, institutions, but they try to do so, yeah, using different mechanisms with Aristotle, the not the representatives, but the aristocratic rulers are chosen by rotation um, among the aristocratic class. So you take turns in governing and leisure. Um, Yeah, it's a mixed regime, the politeia, that's the name for Aristotle's city. It's a mixed regime which contains elements of each of the different classes to prevent any one of them from becoming overly habituated to having its own way all the time. Right, right. And for uh, Constant, there's an electoral mechanism, at least at some level, whereby um, there might be um, a monarch, but a constitutional monarchy where you have a body, where you have a legislature um, elected by the, the propertied citizens, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's property owning. Kind of that's why you like to call it a proto democracy. Yeah, it's a democracy, but only still on behalf of those who own property. It's yeah. not universal suffrage in the American or twenty first twentieth uh, century European sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's still got a lot of hangovers from prior political thought in that regard. And I, I think so. There are a number of different ways it's dissatisfying, right? One is that it, it isn't universal suffrage. It's right. still only permitting certain people to participate on the basis of property. Right. Uh, secondly, it, it still isn't really integrating women into the state because it's not as if Constant is making an argument for women's suffrage. Right. A third, the, in the sense that it abolishes slavery, it's in the property ownership sense because it's not as if there isn't going to be a lot of work that Aristotle would regard as slavish work, slavish activity. Mm. Yeah, that work still exists in Constant society. It's just done by people who are nominally free. So if you are what you repeatedly do and a slave is slavish because a slave just does slave work or a slave takes orders from another, in Constant society, the employees, the people who work for other people, they might not be slaves, but they take orders from other people and they perform the work that is about creating the necessities that are necessary for other people to do other things with their time. So they perform the same function as the slaves. They have the same lack of control over what they do with their time that the slaves have, uh, but they're not property in a strict sense. And that's so it's not really a, a, a genuine full abolishment of slavery. And that's yeah. where the Marxists who come later will will get this this notion of wage slavery from, the notion that the wage relationship is really not a free relationship because the employee is still very much constrained in what they can choose to do with their time. Mm. And the other big issue here is that the cost for moving people from property slavery to wage slavery without doing anything about the property requirements for political participation or the gender requirement for political participation. The cost of all of this is that commerce expands massively under this state. And that means that it is going to 
not just eat away at the scope for political action, which constant makes an argument that there might be something to gain from that. It also means it's going to eat into the scope for leisure and the cultivation of the virtues. And a lot of the work from this time wrestles with this question of the spread of commerce, because a lot of the theorists who are writing at this time, they are familiar with the Greek classics. And so they're thinking about economics and class has a lot to do with the Romans and the Greeks. If you think about economists today, right, lots of economists might read Adam Smith or, or the economists who follow him, but Adam Smith himself is reading Greeks and Romans mm. when he's learning. And so for Adam Smith, there's this you know, whole book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is all about how, hey, wait a minute, we need to preserve the virtue of the commercial society here because if we don't, it's going to get really grim. Mm. And the only way that you can get the benefits of the wealth of nations is through some kind of system of the, uh, for creating virtue. Mm. And what we're seeing here is a, a system where straightforwardly that is breaking down. Yeah. And so I think it's worrying on a couple fronts. The wage slavery thing is very troubling. And then also the vulgarization of, of free time. And so one of the things we were talking about before we got on the show is just kind of contemporary attitudes to leisure time and how un-Aristotelian they are. So for instance, I, uh, we, we talked about how in ancient Greece, the aristocrats not only had leisure and did politics, they also did a lot of war fighting. And they had to do a lot of war fighting, right? Because war fighting is how you go get more slaves, which is how you get more leisure time. So- for Greek city-states, war fighting is an essential piece of the political economy because it's about slave collection. And, of course, another one of the things that Constant says is good about his state is that because his state runs on commerce rather than slavery, it doesn't need nearly so much war fighting. Mm. And we talked about how there was kind of a hangover from the old Aristotelian state where you know, people would still kind of want their kids to join the army or respect their kids for joining the army because that was an honorable thing to serve the state or to serve the city or the country or the community yeah. in some form or fashion. And we, we were thinking about what if Edmund dropped out of Cambridge and announced that he was going to join the army? How would his parents react to that? Yeah, we, 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 we were chatting about this possibility before the podcast, um, uh, Benjamin and I, and I, I think that on the one hand, it could be, uh, from my parents' point of view, a good thing if they wanted me uh, to be better at managing my time. Because one thing that the army does is it instills in you a sense of discipline. But I guess the interesting thing about that is that that's not an ancient Greek reason for joining the army. It's not for the reason of honour, for, for, um, for dignity's sake, that it's worth me joining the army. It would be because it helps me manage my time better. So ironically, if my parents were to accept my proposition to join the army, it would probably be for vulgar reasons and not for the ancient Greek conceptions of dignity. Um, it would still be a vulgar case for joining the army 
not a virtuous one because the virtuous argument can't really be made today. Um, because I think while um, in the States there is still a lingering um, sense in which uh, the, mil the military is the heart and soul of America's national character, I think that especially in European states, that's not really the case anymore. Um, and so as war fighting has been replaced by commerce, even Edmund joining the army is done for vulgar reasons. And that would yeah, be- and I, Yeah, I think that's, uh, <laughs> you, you also see that a little bit in the tiering of the services in the States where people tend to have more respect for highly trained branches that operate expensive equipment like the Air Force right. and the ordinary army where poor people tend to enlist. Well, that isn't worthy of nearly as much respect anymore as, oh, the highly trained Marines, right? There's a, a certain snootiness that develops surrounding that. Uh, and that's in a place where there is still some level of implicit honor or respect for military service. And in the European context, that seems pretty much gone. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, from there, we went on and talked about you know, this, this notion that Edmund should develop time management skills. And what are time management skills about? Well, time management skills, it seems to me, are about learning early in life how to not have any free time, how to not have enough time to do all the things you need to do, not necessarily all the things you want to do, but all the things you need to do. Mm. I mean, if, you, if they were all things you wanted to do, you wouldn't have that much trouble getting yeah. them all done, would you? Yeah. So no, it's yeah. all the things you need to do. Yeah. So it's about training people to not have any leisure time, training yeah. people to be the kinds of people who don't get to cultivate the virtues in Aristotle's yeah. sense. Yeah. And these days we, we seem to think that it's not a good thing if you're someone who likes to sit around and do things that don't make any money and which don't generate any uh, social respect. Mm. Yeah. And there isn't even all that much emphasis on social respect. Could you, you know, decide to leave Cambridge and join a, a religious order where you, you know, could you, could you join a monastery, Edmund? Would that make your parents any happier? Yeah, it, I, I, think, I think that would be, a, I think that also would be a bit problematic. <laughs> yeah. Would it be problematic just because they don't share the religious conviction or would it be problematic because they can't see the point in a life that is devoted purely to matters of the spirit? Yeah, I think it would probably be both uh, from my um, parents' uh, perspective. My par and that's not to out your parents because <laughs> they have produced you and that's astounding. My, my, uh, Edmund's my, parents here are a stand-in for pretty much anybody's parents, in uh, especially anybody who's professional class or goes to a, a university, particularly a posh boy university like our Cambridge. <laughs> you know, uh, most people's parents in this kind of setting are of this kind of type, and it's part of how people who end up here end up here. I think there are uh, to push back a little bit. I think that. 
in in modernity, there is still uh, some degree of emphasis on the second and third parts of Plato's soul. So we discussed last time um, how Plato had three parts of the soul, um, the desiring part, which is about loving the pursuit of material stuff, um, which corresponds to the money-loving class, and then the spirited part, which is about pursuing recognition, which is corresponding to the honour-loving class, the soldiers in society, and, and, and then the philosopher class, uh, the rational part of the soul. Because for Plato, the three parts of the soul correspond to the, uh, the three classes in society. I think that even if in modernity there is a greater emphasis on the appetitive, the material uh, part of the soul, the desiring part, I think there still is that pursuit of recognition. It's just often masked, because, um, or or, pa or perhaps transferred and limited. Because, for instance, I think that uh, you know, music is something that is something that my uh, parents are, uh, and I am very committed to, and that's something that is you know, quite unrelated to uh, pursuing material gains. Although uh, it's becoming more and more often that the argument made for schools to um, make their kids do more music is not that music gives you some kind of virtue, some kind of sense of community and belonging. It's that m doing music will give you the skills needed to enter the workplace, because did you know that people who do music um, at school will get better time management skills? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason left. Um, but, you know, th that being said, people, I think, know at a, at a deeper level that there is something valuable about this stuff, about music or about poetry or about philosophy that is deeper than just getting ahead in the workplace. But I think, yeah, it's often masked. They just don't want their own children to do it, in part because there's worry that your kid yeah. might not succeed at it, and then they might become economically dependent on you. I think that is part right. of it. And right. that fear yeah. of economic dependence is because you know that your kid cannot just pick up some slaves at the supermarket. That's not going to happen. Right. And so there is this need for economic sustenance. People have to be able to sustain themselves. The overwhelming majority of families cannot sustain adult children in perpetuity economically mm. in the kind of society that we have now. Yeah. And it was very often the case in ancient times that you, you could, if you were in one of these slave-owning families, just perpetuate it. But the thing is, that was always a small number of people, a very tiny number. And as we've tried to increase the number of people who have some kind of political role, we've had to A, shrink the political role, and B, find a way to include people who don't own slaves and therefore don't have nearly as much free time. Yeah. And so this is the thing, like, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like we're slagging off Constant because he was trying to deal with a very difficult problem. Yeah. And it's one that we're still grappling with. 
Yeah. And it's certainly one that you see a lot of socialist movements really trying to figure out. And it's how can you have a meaningful type of freedom and universalize that freedom so that everyone can have it? Yeah. And that's a real tough nut to crack. Yeah. I think, yeah, to, to, to mount a further defense of Constant's intentions, he did want to rightly get away from the emphasis on community as standing above um, individuals. I think he rightly was interested in giving individuals um, the time to do other stuff, the time to do stuff that's not just related to politics, because Constant has two types of liberty that he contrasts, the liberty of the ancients, which is political, and the liberty of the moderns, which is private. But of course, when he talks about private liberty in his uh, small essay, The Liberty of the Ancients Compared to That of the Moderns, he's talking about commercial liberty. But in his uh, novella, Adolphi, um, Constant is talking about um, aesthetic liberty too. And in that novella, he talks about the conflict um, between the character's romantic and aesthetic pursuits and their needs to do commerce and to look after their family's wealth. And so I think that Constant is very well intended in trying to combine political liberty with other kinds of freedom, um, freedom that isn't necessarily uh, always about doing what's right for the polis. But the way he equates individual liberty with pure commerce is perhaps the main problem, because it deprives us of the time we need to do other stuff and focuses society's attention on stuff that's about material gains rather than on honour or on philosophy and on freedom in a deeper sense. And, and to his credit, he is a relatively early example of an abolitionist at a time when they were not necessarily all that widespread. Yeah. So credit, credit to him on a couple of fronts there. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting comparison would be Aristotle's critic of his predecessor, his, his, his teacher, um, Plato, who was talking about uh, what Plato's teacher, Socrates, said about having everything in common so that people have property, people have family in common, at least among the ruling class in Socrates' state. And uh, Aristotle's criti critique of this is not that oh, uh, this creates inequality between different classes because the Greeks are fine with class inequality because they can't think of any way of abolishing it because technology is too underdeveloped to think of anything like that. But Aristotle thinks that even among the ruling class, um, there should be some private property because if there's not, then people can't pursue 
individual interests, and I think there is a similarity there between Constant and Aristotle. I don't want to defend Aristotle's argument here, but I think there might be, you know, some links between them in their desire to not embrace the strong communitarian thesis that the community stands apart from the individual, and indeed this is Aristotle's critique of Plato's Utopia, that it tries to replace uh, individual happiness with community happiness and doesn't care enough about the happiness of the individual rulers. I don't know. Perhaps that is one I, possible I think parallel. A case to, yeah, I think there's a case to be made there. Yeah. And uh, to briefly go back to, I, I love that you brought in Adolphi. Yeah. When a student uses Adolphi well in a constant essay at Cambridge, you just, you just, you're just so happy. It's just so nice to see somebody bring that in. But one of the things that I like about Adolphi is how seriously Constant takes the possibility that even his own political theory may be creating these really miserable people who are identifying primarily with the aesthetic and yeah. don't have anything else really to live for apart from the aesthetic. And I think you see that a lot in contemporary society with people who, for whom the thing that's most important to them in life is some kind of taste. Right. Whether it's a series of films or a, a, a variety of TV shows, some type of, some genre of music. They're, 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 uh, maybe it's a adventurous sex life, but it's some kind of aesthetic pursuit. It's something that some subculture that's grounded around a shared aesthetic pursuit and that aesthetic pursuit isn't tied to anything further in terms of pursuing notions of the good or the truth. And it's also not interfacing with the political. Okay. It's yeah. just kind of a, what Aristotle would call an amusement. It's something that you engage in so that you can go back to work. Yeah. Aristotle draws this distinction between leisure and amusement, where leisure is something that you use to cultivate some skills or talents or abilities uh, or to do some contemplating. And amusement is recharge time. It's time that you expend getting yourself back in condition where you can resume the work. Right. And a lot of this kind of aesthetic identity that we see in Adolphi is, I think, quite reminiscent of someone whose life has become all about amusement. Yeah, and both of those, amusement and leisure, are distinct from work. And I right, guess, right. yeah, linking back to the, the question of organizing time at an individual level. Uh, today, when people talk about time organization, they're talking not just about work, but having the amusement necessary to go back to work and feel refreshed. Right. The self-care argument. Mm. Right. Self-care is not leisure. It's not Aristotelian freedom. It's amusement. It's a kind of repair work that you're supposed to do on yourself mm. so that you can go back to work. And it's interesting how that repair work is now being sold to people as work-life balance. Mm. Is your life just supposed to be amusement? Is that what life is about? Yeah. Not for Aristotle, certainly not. Do we want to push back, Benjamin, against Aristotle to the extent that while Aristotle thought that you should spend your leisure time by doing 
prim- primarily philosophy, do we want to suggest that philosophy is one among several intrinsic goods that you can spend your leisure time doing? And that yeah, different people I may think- be inclined to do different things with their leisure time that aren't just amusement. Yeah, I think there may even be some scope in the existing text to pull some of this out. Okay. And that it, it seems to be the case that there are lots of crafts that you could do in a virtuous way or a vulgar way. So remember back when I was talking about music at the beginning, right? You can play music in a way that is based on what you think is good music, mm. right? And when you're thinking about what's good music, you are in some sense doing philosophy in Aristotle's sense because you are thinking about the good in relation to the craft or the techne that is music, right? So there are a lot of ways to do something that I think is tied to philosophy in Aristotle's sense, Mm. which to us would look like an altogether different activity from philosophy, which is why like when you you get a PhD, it's a doctor of philosophy in something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the idea is that you've you've spent some time thinking about and thinking about how to think about that thing. Yeah. That's what it, and and that uh, what the PhD signifies is that people who have also spent a lot of time thinking about that thing and thinking about how to think about that thing certify that you use the time well enough to be yeah. worthy of a PhD. Yeah. Would and so you, you could you could imagine there. Sometimes people talk about getting a PhD in totally ordinary activities, like a a PhD in driving, right? Mm. And sometimes they just mean you know learning something in a learning how to do something that's very complicated. But other times they do mean something more like getting into the philosophy of the activity and yeah. thinking about how the good relates to that activity. Yeah. And and by contrast, that the vulgar person is may learn how to do the activity with great technical proficiency, but puts it to an altogether different use. So for instance, there are great there are filmmakers who are great in the sense that they are able to make movies that make a huge amount of money. Like the people who make the Marvel movies, they have great technical skills. It is very technically challenging to make a Marvel movie, which is why they cost $700 million to make. Yeah. But that movie is being made on the basis of what will make money. Right. That's what is dictating the creative decision making. So the film is still a vulgar film, even though great technical proficiency has gone into it. If instead they were freed up to make the movie in accordance with what they think makes a movie good, and they were able to use the film to express their judgments and views about what counts as a good movie, then we could go see that movie and the rest of us could apply you know, what we think makes a good movie to our critical judgment of that movie. And this is where, if I might bring in a little bit of Hannah Arendt, when Hannah Arendt thinks about the world uh, as a kind of aesthetic space, politics is as an aesthetic realm of aesthetic action, she's thinking about places where you, you, you make art, you do these things, and then other people judge it. And that's what, for her, politics is really supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about what she calls the social, which is the creation of the 
institutions that are necessary to have a space where you can do these things, right? Yeah. She divides, uh, and drawing on Aristotle, divides human activity into three different things, labor, work, and action, yeah. where action is affiliated with artistic pursuits and also critique of other people's artistic pursuits, conversations, acting in concert, deciding together what to do or what it would be good to do, right? Which is very much about the process of creating art together and judging art together and making new decisions about what kinds of art and culture to produce. That's action for her. Labor is about taking care of the basic necessities of life. And work is about constructing and maintaining tools that yeah. interface between these things. So the work of maintaining the state is for, is for Arendt quite literally work. Yeah. And separate from action, which for her is an aesthetic pursuit. Now, because Arendt doesn't have Aristotle's notion of objective virtue connected to the good or, or to truth, because she has a more subjectivist aesthetic, where it's more about kind of an endless discussion about what is good or what we, uh, what we should do, that is very, very pluralistic for Arendt. There's always more options and, and always more different things to do, and everyone's individuality is recognized, right? Mm. That's different from Aristotle and Plato, because Aristotle and Plato don't think that the truth is something that is up to, uh, that is a subjective thing for individuals to have an endlessly pluralistic series of deliberations about. Even though it is individuals who pursue the truth. It, right. It, yeah, despite that, the truth is objective, right? Right, the truth is objective. It's not subjective for the Greeks. And because Arendt deviates from their moral realism, there isn't a set of moral standards to which you would naturally hold Arendt's state, which is why oftentimes when we have students read The Human Condition, and we'll, we'll do an Arendt episode at some point and spend more time on it. Yeah. Uh, some students react very negatively to it because they think it's just dismissive of the real problems of, say, managing political economy, managing who gets access to what resources, because she just doesn't include those things in her understanding of the political. Mm. And in part because it's a kind of, it's a little bit of a utopian work, but also because Arendt is mainly interested in the spaces for political action that have existed or do exist or may exist. And the other things are just outside of her her interests, really. And and she's concerned that when politics becomes about those other things, that the space for political action gets corrupted or, or distorted. Now, me personally, I am sympathetic to the students who are critical of it because I've got enough Marxism in me to to want a state that pays attention to political economy. And I don't like the idea that political economy is a distraction from an artistic debate mm. because there are too many people who are too poor for us to treat political economy as a distraction from an artistic debate. But I think there's some value in bringing this in just to illustrate that there are ways of applying Aristotle's kinds of thinking in ways that make it evident that there are lots of different activities that can be philosophical insofar as they take into account what we take to be good. What we take right. to be good art, a good craft, good techne in the Greek. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you think that as well as activity being valued for its own sake, to bring it back to Aristotle, um, and that being part of a broader meaning of philosophy or virtuous 
expenditure of leisure time. Do you think valuing uh, people for their own sake would be something that could count, perhaps on a neo-Aristotelian view for philosophy? Uh, so I guess I'm thinking of um, if you know, playing a musical instrument for its own sake rather than for the sake of earning money, for instance, is what is virtuous for Aristotle. Uh, could the same be the case about valuing other people? I think the, the issue is that for Aristotle, he's very teleological, which means he thinks every action has got a purpose inherent in it or implicit in it. Mm. Uh, every, everything is, is a means to some end except for the good, which is an end in itself. Right. And so Aristotle is always going to be evaluating things and making hierarchical rankings on the basis of to what extent does that thing align with pursuing the good or pursuing the truth? Right. He's, he's very reluctant because of how teleological he is in thinking that everything has a purpose and the thing which has no further purpose is the good. Everything has to lead back to the good or it leads to something that is totally in op opposition to the good or, or totally out of alignment with it. So he'd be fine with, uh, with love, not just of particular activities, but of relations between people. And he'd be fine with that if so long as it's for the sake of the good. Could that constitute an expanded definition of philosophy, I guess is what I'm asking. Do you think? I, I, I definitely think that you could say that Aristotle might have a notion of what it means to be a good parent. Right. Or a good child or a good friend yes. because yeah. that, that relationship has a purpose, some kind of telos. And you could even think of those kinds of relationships as technes, as crafts. Mm. The craft of parenting, the craft of, of being a friend, and as something that you could spend leisure time contemplating how to do better, how to improve. I think one of the things that goes wrong in a lot of people's romantic relationships, for instance, is that they don't spend enough time contemplating them and thinking about how to make them better. And of course, this mm. is because they don't have the time to do those things. And so oftentimes you get a lot of trouble in relationships that it never really gets dealt with because there's never enough time. And when problems don't get dealt with in relationships, they tend to generate resentment. And the more resentment you have, the harder it is to deal constructively with something. I guess that perhaps brings out the distinctiveness of Aristotle's virtue ethics, that unlike Kantian ethics, which says that you should uh, value individuals as ends in themselves, and utilitarian ethics, on the other hand, which says you should value preference satisfaction as an end in itself, Aristotle wants to say it's the relations and the actions that should be valued for the sake of the good. Yes, and then the good is the thing which is valuable only for its own sake and with no further, further purpose. Yeah, and that, that would be a way of clearly distinguishing him from both Kant and Mill, who have... Mill, who's got a pleasure sat satisfaction thing going, although it's one that is more complex than Bentham's more hedonistic account. Yeah. And and Kant, who is who is 
valuing autonomy, I think. And when he values the person, Kant is valuing the person's autonomy, ability to choose. And in a way, both of them are valuing autonomy to a degree because Mill is respecting whatever it is you happen to desire or whatever it is you happen to want, at least up to a point. Mm. Uh, And certainly Bentham would. Bentham respects whatever it is you happen to find pleasurable. And Kant respects your choice. But Aristotle demands that you answer to the good. Okay. And if your action doesn't aim at the good, Aristotle is going to give you a kick in the pants. Uh, And the same goes for Plato and I think most of the pre-liberal thinkers. There is something that is the right thing that you're supposed to be aiming at. Augustine, and we we may talk about Augustine at some point, but Augustine is always talking about how cities are based around what it is that the people who live in those cities love. What is it that they all love? And the ideal city for the Greeks is one where everybody loves the truth, or in Augustine's parlance, where everybody loves God. Mm. Um, That would be the ideal city, the perfect city. And so when we bring up Kant or Mill, that emphasis on autonomy, that emphasis on desire satisfaction, both of those things run afoul because there's nothing to guarantee that the autonomous choices aim at the good, and there's nothing to guarantee that a person will have their will get pleasure from the right kinds of things. And indeed, often the Greeks talk about how you need to be educated to develop a taste for the right kinds of things. You have to learn how to have the right preferences. And that's part of training someone to use their leisure in the right kind of way. They have to be, they have to be trained up to have the right tastes and the right preferences in the first place. So there isn't much, they don't take autonomy or preference satisfaction, desire satisfaction very seriously. And so I think that's why it's often very hard to talk about the Greeks together with Kant and Mill because the whole frame is completely different. Mm. Could you argue that Aristotle does want people to, or at least uh, some people, the educated people, the people with enough time, to choose what to do with their life? That ends in yes, life. yes, but, you could say yeah, that yeah. because Aristotle thinks that the virtuous person will be a master, will be someone who can choose what to do with their time. Right. The thing is that that person has to be educated at the appropriate time to have the right ends in mind so that when they have free time, they put that leisure time to the right kind of use. And so there's an educational process that's supposed to prepare you for the choices that you have when you are engaged in in leisure. But the thing is, the city has to intervene if people are making bad choices that make it impossible or more difficult for other people to be good or for the city to be good. So with Mm. the Greeks and the Romans, it will always be to the city to make sure that there aren't individual units who through lack of education or decadence or corruption or whatever the narrative is, are submarining the good of the city. And they will always treat it as a political question that the people in the city are entitled to make. So the individual does not get the benefit of the doubt when there's a conflict between the individual and the city for the for the Greeks. The city gets the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And it's a political question for the city. And that's why they care so much about how the city's political institutions are designed, because that will determine how the city answers those questions about the good. Yeah. 
And that's why it's so important for the city to be oriented toward that. So you have these cities that are based on the good or honor or money. And it's all about the orientation of the city and the things the city prioritizes when it's making judgments. Hmm. And the same as the individual. That's why Plato draws that analogy. Yeah. It's certainly an interesting contrast because while for Hobbes, what distinguishes the artificial person of the state from natural persons like you and me is that natural persons are self-sufficient in some sense, whereas the artificial person of the state depends on the will, the imagination um, of natural persons. Whereas for Plato, it's the community, it's the state that is self-sufficient. And so I guess that's one neat contrast between the collectivism of the ancients versus the individualism of the moderns. Right. And you as the individual depend on the state for your education and cultivation, for your access to the slaves that you need for the free time. Right? Yeah. And if you fall afoul of the city, it's up to the city to police you out and get rid of you so that the freedom of the remaining masters can be protected. But uh, the thing that is so, so aggravating about this, and Kant's not really picked it out, is that these cities, for all the virtue they cultivate, they're still gangs of slave owners. Yeah. Gangs of slave owners. Yeah. Isn't there, there's got to be something else. Yeah. I, yeah. I think as we've illustrated in this episode, Constant was able to come up with ways of getting rid of some very overt forms of slavery. Yeah. But he wasn't necessarily able to, to get to the, the root of it. So he, and maybe yeah. that's because he, maybe, maybe that's because we didn't have the technology to do it. What, when right. you're talking about Constant's context of the 18th and 19th century, we start to move into a technological frame that is different, where the sets of things that are possible look different, where socialism really starts to kick off as an idea that people are interested in, the utopian socialists in particular, pre-1848. Uh, and, and people start wondering, is, is more possible? And Constant's answer is relatively conservative compared to what will follow. Mm. And so, could we say that the distribution of time um, is perhaps what both Aristotle and Constant are at some level concerned with? Aristotle is concerned with um, making sure that some people have enough time for leisure. And Constant is concerned that a hell of a lot of people don't really have enough time uh, for doing stuff that's meaningful. And so they both um, try to find ways around that, but both of which deny significant numbers of people from free time. And I guess perhaps that suggests that in order to have a better distribution of time, you need to have a better way of producing time in the first place. And I guess that goes back to technology, that while, yeah, yeah. while Athens had labor-intensive um, production of time, Constant society has somewhat more automated production of time, 
but enough labour-intensive production of time to keep everybody occupied in doing that producing, in doing that working. And so perhaps... Right, yeah, and the introduction yeah. of the automation creates some imaginarium. It starts to make people think about, well, what else might be possible? This has yeah. changed relatively rapidly in just a lifetime. What else could be possible? That's that's where I think that all of those industrial progress narratives begin to open up and people yeah. start to dream dream bigger. Yeah. But yeah, they are both ultimately concerned with the distribution of time. And as, as is so often the case, the way it's pitched is that you have a choice between a society where some people live great lives, but most people live pretty bad lives, or a society where everybody lives a pretty bad life. And if you think about you know, capitalist arguments against socialism from the 20th century, this is how they go. They say that what socialism is promising is a world where everybody has a bad life, mm. as opposed to most people having a bad life, but some people doing a little bit better and you having some non-zero chance of being in the sum. Yeah. That's how inequality tends to get justified in contemporary political thought on the basis of the leveling down objection that what, to make it more equal, you're just going to ruin things for the people who are having a nice time? Mm. You won't improve things all that much for everybody else. You know, are you really that much better off in, in Constance society than you were in the ancient context? And look at all of the virtue you've, you've had to throw out to get there. Uh, that, that tends to be the, the argument that everybody who wants a better world faces again and again. And the question is, how do we tell a plausible story about having enough time so that everyone really can have some kind of meaningful freedom? Or are we going to settle with a move like Constance and kind of change what freedom means such that we can have it without really having it? Yeah. Freedom to profit from commerce rather than freedom to pursue the truth and do meaningful stuff with your time. Yeah, That's it's amazing how well we've, we've, we've managed to sell people on that being freedom because <laughs> virtually nobody does what they think is good or worthwhile with their life in this day and age. Hmm. And pretty much everybody you know, just goes and gets a job and manages their time. Hmm. And even, I guess, the pursuit of recognition that happens in modern day is a lot less communal and social than it was in Aristotle's time. Because uh, whether it's Plato's guardians or Aristotle's citizens soldiers, both these people are honor-loving in the sense of loving uh, being a part of a larger whole. Whereas today, even when we're pursuing recognition rather than material satisfaction, it's still related in a solipsism of the self rather than in relation to a larger whole, rather than in relation to community. Yeah, it's individualistic and it mirrors the competitive features of commerce yeah. uh, as opposed to the more collective features yeah. of those earlier societies. Yeah. I, you know, I think, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. And I guess yeah, honor, yeah. honor today is, is getting things like the Joffrey Hawthorne Prize, which only Edmund can have, and you can't have it because it belongs to Edmund. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. Do we want to say, Benjamin, that 
while people often say today that there's a clear choice between collectivist societies that oppress the individual and individualist societies that drain the collective, do we want to say that there is a link between individuality and collectivity that means that true freedom is found through happiness at both levels, but one where we don't separate individuality from collectivity? Could you make that argument that perhaps what Plato and Aristotle really wanted is happiness that is collective, but that is also felt by all the individuals, where individuality and collectivity aren't separated from each other, but are linked. Yeah, where there's, where there's a harmony between these things rather yeah. than, than being at odds with each other. And yeah. the, the unfortunate reality is they ran up against that wall of trying to find enough time. Yeah, yeah. They, they just ran smack into that barrier and they found ways to rationalize it, naturalize it. And, and Constant tried to get out, but he just wasn't in the right context for getting out. I think it's perhaps understandable why Constant said what he said, because it wasn't really on the horizon in Constant's day. Um, at the beginning of, or near the beginning of, uh, large-scale industrial capitalism for giving everyone Aristotelian freedom, that really wasn't remotely on the horizon. And I guess there's a no, yeah, no, that, it really wasn't. There's a link there that uh, Constant naturalizes wage slavery in the same way that Aristotle naturalizes chattel slavery, because for both of them, they're not really motivated by the intuition that people can be naturally slavish. What they're really saying is that it's expedient to have these arrangements. What I guess Aristotle's really saying is that it's expedient to have a whole bunch of slaves and that he feels bad about it. So he calls them natural slaves. And perhaps in the same way, Constant is saying, well, we can't really automate labor. So maybe labor is freedom. And maybe, um, maybe that's what liberty really means. And I think you also will, will see that in Marx, because when you talk about the Marxist conception of human nature, it's very much what Arendt calls homo faber, man the maker. Yeah. Man is, is someone who does work, which frustrates Arendt because Arendt thinks that work is totally inferior to yeah. political action. Or, or even- so she's yeah. very derisive of Marx's account. Or even um, homo laborans, the other, the, the, the first image of Arendt's triad of- uh, labor, work, and action. The, oh yes, well that—that's even worse. Yeah, Mar Mar yeah. Mar I mean, think about how many uh, left-wing movements are about labor, and the opposition is labor versus capital, which is true. But I think there's also uh, a fetish of labor, which is itself capitalist uh, in a sense. It's about naturalizing a society where. None of us are free. And so that's the opposition that right-wing people make to whether it's authoritarian socialism or more contemporary movements for democratic socialism. They say that, oh, what you're trying to do is make everyone a permanent wage slave. 
rather than letting some aristocrats and oligarchs have a good time. But I guess what we want to say is that in our society, even Jeff Bezos isn't truly free because what he does with his leisure time is stuff that Aristotle would regard as vulgar. It's about pursuing more money rather than pursuing activities and relationships that are valued for the sake of the good. Yes, even Jeff Bezos lives a vulgar life. How sad for him. How sad. At least in ancient Greece, at least in Aristotle and Plato's view, some people were free. Even if most people weren't, some people allegedly valued activities and relationships for their own sake, for the sake of the good. But today, perhaps, uh, even though we still have... um, We still have class inequality, but today's class society is one where even the ruling class isn't truly free because they don't do stuff with their leisure time that is about valuing stuff for the sake of the good. It's about. Yeah, it's a situation where even the ruling class is vulgar in Aristotle's terminology. It's oriented toward not even honor, but mainly money. So the left is often about redistribution today. But I guess, Benjamin, that what we want to say is that it's important to go beyond that and to focus not just on the distribution of time, but on the production of time, whether time is uh, produced in society in a way that's labor intensive or whether it's automated and whether we can increase that automation. So whether we can transition, in other words, from labor intensive production that you had in ancient Greece to the mixed form production that you have under capitalism to perhaps automated production in the future, which can be the groundwork for an equal distribution and for a common organization and for free consumption of time. Yeah, I think think that you make an an interesting case there been a lot of, of good observations in the back half of the podcast today, Edmund. You've really been flying along. Well, <laughs> way to go. Thanks to a wonderful supervisor. Hey, that's, that's the ideal, you know, the ideal supervision at Cambridge is one where by the end, the student is doing most of the talking and you don't have to do any work. <laughs> but to do that, you've got to get them comfortable and get them chatty. Mm. That's, that's ideal. Well, Benjamin does the a- work is in getting them ready to do the talking. No, yeah, no. Well, Benjamin does a great job at getting his students to relax. People often think of supervision as the stuff that's intimidating, uh, but when I remember the first supervision and Benjamin was relating Thomas Hobbes to uh, to, to to cinema movies and, and like Mad Max Fury Road, I think that Benjamin's supervisions are particularly. Uh, relaxing and and rewarding and all supervisions are uh, but i think benjamin has a particular knack for making sure his students are relaxed and not intimidated in any way which is yeah the mark of all great supervisors well and i hope that you in listening to this podcast have been relaxed yeah. and not intimidated in any way <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we'll, we'll probably leave it. We'll have another one. Looks like these are coming out every two weeks or so. I'm still working on getting them on YouTube. And I've heard people say that they want them in other places other than SoundCloud. And I would love to find some time to do that. I will try to squirrel that away at some point. Maybe I'll get some help 
from somebody mm. with that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where it will be for now, and we'll we'll have another one of these probably in around two weeks. Sounds like a plan. So thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, everyone. 